AVXL episode 142 was recorded on June 3rd, 2021. We get hands-on with the second-gen Apple TV 4K. Samsung's RGB laser projector has color beyond BT 2020. Earpad replacements a fix for that dead subwoofer. Mayor of East Town and so much more. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you have a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AV Accelerator Guide to the Best in Home Video and Audio Gear, no matter what your budget is. My name is Patrick Norton. Hello, I am Robert Heron. I'm feeling so <laughs> something today. Stiff. Uh, Hello, and welcome to AVXL. Today we'll discuss the finer points of high-end audio and why diamond tweeters may be in your future. Grab your checkbook, we're going on an audio adventure. Money! If you're not laughing right now, you probably don't know me. <laughs> Throw it down! Mayor of Easttown, Netflix, really, 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 really outstanding acting and writing. Uh, not lighthearted. At all. As a former Bucks County resident, Kate Winslet's accent is actually, as people have been saying, eerily good because Pennsylvania accents are complicated. Oh, Philadelphia accents are complicated. If you live in Philly, feel free to tell me uh, I'm off on that one. But as somebody who spent a lot of time wandering around certain parts of Philadelphia and the areas around Philadelphia, it was really interesting to see where they shot that and how they shot that heartbreaking, a lot of intense family, neighborhood, community, and of course, crime stuff going on. And unbelievably like right up to a cliffhanger at the end of each episode was just really good writing i was actually kind of uh heartbroken at how good the writing was because uh, the writing broke my heart expect this to get a ton of awards nice and if it doesn't day was robbed which is not a philly accent <laughs> water this is reminding me to take advantage of my netflix account and really explore some of the things i might not otherwise see taco chronicles but we'll talk about that later on <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have two words for you, my friend. Taco Chronicles. Um, I am interested. We'll talk about that later. We've had an epic adventure with our friend Ryan, which we'll also talk about later on in the podcast, involving brightness, ultra short throw projectors, and other things. But the two of us, I think, have probably spent more time reading about screen materials and ultra short throw laser projectors than really I think anybody particularly wants to because we're obsessed. You were getting really excited about the new specs on Samsung's RGB laser projector, which has some strange, strange stuff when you start talking about BT2020. Totally. The Premier LSP9T, the 4K triple laser projector. Now, we were talking about the triple laser design of the HU85LA, which is a LG short throw design. And that actually uses a red laser, a blue laser, and then a second blue laser that tickles a piece More of phosphor blue. material to make the green subchannel. In this case, with the Premier projector from Samsung, they are actually using true RGB, red, blue, and green laser diodes to provide the light source for this bright and colorful picture that they are producing with this honestly pretty impressive 4K laser projector. 
Granted, it is also a short throw design, and it's good for images up to about 130 inches. The specs you mentioned are pretty otherworldly. When you switch to laser <laughs> primaries, they're talking 106% of the BT2020 color space. My guess is that they've extended blue a little closer to ultraviolet right. and red a little closer to infrared <laughs> to expand that color palette. And as long as it incorporates the <laughs> gamut of BT2020, having a few extra percent is a great thing. I am just fascinated with these triple laser projectors uh, that incorporate no moving parts, literally. This includes right. the Samsung LSP9T and that LG HU85LA. They're single chip DLP projectors, and typically you have that color breakup artifact, a rainbow artifact that is just a characteristic of these type of projectors, especially when they were lamp-based or they were only using a single blue laser and then running that through a phosphor color wheel that's moving, of course. It seems with these triple laser designs, they are significantly reducing the perceived artifact of that color breakup or rainbow artifact. And that to me is just... Right freaking great that's getting it one step closer to maybe people considering it over a three lcd design if you are very sensitive to these rainbow breakup artifacts with dlp projectors keep in mind that triple laser designs these constant illumination devices well they're probably pulsed but being able to have three solid channels of color going into one of these systems seems to reduce that artifact quite a bit and it's pretty cool and we were talking about Christie Digital's amazing projectors that are a cool six <laughs> figures uh, starting price. They are amazingly bright and colorful and use three DLP full cinema 4K chips. Those are crazy expensive. But this Samsung using a single chip design with an RGB laser setup, $6,500 right now if you wanted to set that up. And I am just excited because I am going to be testing one of these out in the next couple days. Actually, I think tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow evening. I'm going to go uh, Ooh. take a look at the LSP9T paired with, I believe, an elite screen ambient light rejecting screen. So this will be a good hands-on follow-up to what we were talking about last week. But anyway, just to let you know, there are true RGB laser projectors out there, at least from Samsung. While it is not cheap, I mean, even $6,500, yeah, compare that to the six figures that we were talking about for something more right. professional or commercial. Typically, a front projector, somewhere around 3,000 lumens that does HDR, that does 4K or 4K, i.e. 1080p pixel shifting, um, which can look incredibly good. That's right up around that three, three, four thousand $4,000. The lasers get them up to five, $6,000. If you want the next step of blackness, which usually means going something like a JVC or maybe a Sony, that sort of next evolution in performance right now, you're looking at you know eight to $10,000 easily. That's a lot of money. Yeah. It jumps from four to five figures pretty quick. Yeah. And then it just goes through the ceiling. You want to spend six figures? We can send you some names. But uh, that's a conversation for another day. I was, uh, I was laughing. I realized my favorite thing about HDR on my 5050 UB, which is the elimination of banding artifacts. <laughs> very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. No banding in the sky. <laughs> I'm also very pleased to see these RGB laser designs uh, for projection systems slowly making their way into something that's a little more affordable than, you know, money, no object, six figures. We always like the prices going down. Yeah. We're cheap like that. Speaking of cheap uh, or not cheap or just another thing we want to talk about, Apple's, uh, the new Apple TV 4K, the second generation, um, picked one up. I'm going to say this flat out. If you already have a, a 4K Apple TV from 2017, this is probably a tough sell, uh, unless you're like that 0.1% that thinks, my games, my games could run faster. 
in terms of the vast majority of the settings and options, it is fundamentally the same thing, literally down to the box and design, with one massive exception that I'll talk about too much in a second. Menus and apps, they, I think it's faster. I would literally have to sit down side by side with one remote in each thumb, which would be problematic because, of course, I can't thumb on an Apple TV remote as quickly as I can with my left thumb as my right thumb. But my point being is there's just no way to benchmark performance on these. And the reality is, is the Apple 2017 was already fairly fast. You know, is there a little less lag? Sure on the menus. If you have menu lag issues uh, on your 2017 4K Apple TV, go for it. The big deal in terms of actual video performance is it now supports 60 frames per second uh, compared to the previous 4K models, 30 frames per second, which would be way more compelling if there was actually any sports in 4K 60 frames per second. Uh, uh, well, good, you know, sir. In terms of movies. There are some streaming options for your sports in 4K 60. <laughs> Uh, you know, sports ball, not my thing. Other people, it's their thing. You can share that with them. For most people, I think upgrading the remote, if you have issues with the current Siri remote, if you have broken the glass Siri remote, uh, a remote-only upgrade, which is $59, you can buy the remote for $59, bucks. Cool. Uh, is probably a lot more compelling for most people. That remote, as far as I'm concerned, is epic. Uh, I've also had the boys uh, break two remotes since we bought the 4K. Uh, so aluminum, not glass is a very, very happy thing for me. Um, I will also point out that having a silver aluminum remote instead of a, a glass, a black shiny glass aluminum remote is way easier to find on the couch, uh, when somebody drops it during a dark movie. So the touchpad is replaced with a, a sort of click pad with touch surface up, down, left, right. And then the touch surface is in the, the center of the thumb button. You use that for scrolling. It works quite well. The volume and TV control buttons are in the same place as the previous Siri remote. The menu button, though, has been turned into a back button. The Siri button is now on the side of the remote, which I like, except that the mute button is now where the old play pause button was. So there's been a lot of, of muting instead of pausing or pausing instead of muting uh, <laughs> in our house. Um, the power button, I think, is really smart. It is a physical, tiny, small button. It is not the most aesthetically compelling thing, but in terms of usability. It is a small round tactile circle in the far upper right corner of the remote above that uh, click pad. And it's fairly impossible to hit by accident. You know, you can also still do sleep mode with the control center button. That's the one that kind of looks like a TV. Getting my finger around to the Siri button uh, is a little problematic. It would be easy with if I was using the remote with my right hand, but for reasons I don't know, I'm right-handed for vast majority of things in my life, uh, but I tend to hold my television remote with my left hand. So, you know, reaching that button with the left hand is a little, a little harder, the Siri button. And as always, learning any new remote with different button positions is a pain in the ass. Mostly, though, there is no glass to crack. No glass to crack! You can hammer tent pegs with this thing, not that I'm going to, but it has that feel to it. Like, oh, let's just fling it down the stairs. Don't. Unlike the glass Siri remote, I think this will make a lot of people happy. Also, the power button, so smart. So missed that. Just saying. <laughs> it sounds like a worthy upgrade, even if you're using the 2017 model. However, like we talk about quite a bit with any of the HDR TVs out there or Dolby Vision capable TVs, it is nice having a processor built into the box itself that can handle not only today's apps, but make it a smooth experience down the road. Yeah. I'm always tempted to buy a little more CPU in my streaming boxes than I may actually need. Because in the long term, over a few years, it's going to pay for itself over and over and over. 
When it comes to remotes, though, I find myself really being judgmental about remotes in terms of if I just simply <laughs> brush the remote, how likely is the TV to turn on? And I find like dedicated buttons to popular services tend to be the biggest offenders. If you so much as graze that button, the display will come on and it will go right to that channel. And it seems like they just do that on purpose rather than the power button being the only thing that will turn the TV on or the device itself. <laughs> it's like pretty much any branded button on the remote. If even lightly grazed, will suddenly every trigger time the TV you use this on. button, Netflix sends us a quarter of a cent. <laughs> <laughs> literally trained me to be very careful even picking up the remotes if I'm just trying to move them right. around and get them out of the way. <laughs> I'm not even looking at the TV. I just don't want it to accidentally oh turn on. Accidentally. My Please. Ass. No accident to that design. <laughs> no comments. They're guaranteeing some eyeballs for their clients. <laughs> well, I just, I'm just going to move on to uh, some more cheerful news, which is that the Alamo Draft House is out of Chapter 11. So it is moving through the bankruptcy experience. Uh, they closed a lot of locations. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it is a chain of theaters with uh, ties to Austin. A bunch of locations that were supposed to open in the last year or so uh, that were delayed, including Lower Manhattan, Staten Island, uh, two new D.C. locations. And hey, woohoo! Ten screens here in St. Louis are going to be opening. So when that opens, I'll go and I'll let you know how it goes. I'm looking forward to my fancy downtown theater experience. Just saying. <laughs> Ooh. According to the press release on this, it's saying that they're using 4K Barco laser projectors, as well as a 35-millimeter oh, projector in the booth. Nice. That is yeah. going to be a sweet setup that's going to give you pristine image quality, uh, something rivaling even the best displays at home on the super big screen. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, they're pretty well equipped. Uh, I got a shout out to uh, Mr. Richard Whitaker over at the Austin Chronicle that wrote the thing that got me looking at this going, <gasps> <laughs> I'm so excited. 4K Barco laser projector. If it's right. a RGB laser design, if it's not simply a blue laser design only, there's another example of a six-figure projector. Yeah. For commercial setups, though, it's almost required. I mean, you're going to be spending a lot to build something for a screen that large anyway, but still. But nothing. Those projectors are not cheap. <laughs> Save the uh, ultimate value no. you'll get. Well, they're also, for example, in St. Louis, which is supposed to have 10 screens, they're going to get a 4K Barco, something they call the big show that I'm still trying to figure out, and a 35 millimeter setup. The big so show that's is coming. Cool. <laughs> Awesome. What is I just I like to see more theaters adopting digital projection, especially when you can achieve some of the amazing black levels I've seen with either Dolby Cinema. Actually, Dolby Cinema is the biggest one that comes to mind for me that I've actually experienced. It's just a level of contrasting color. It's something I never saw until just recently in terms of what you can actually experience in the theater as far as image quality goes. Audio has always been pretty amazing to me in theaters, but I'll say the last five years or this introduction of these superior 4K laser projectors, especially the RGB designs, mm -hmm. it has got me to go back to the theater for pristine image quality above all else. And that's something I, I thought was lacking for a long time. I have figured out what the big show is and I'm excited. So Big Show at Alamo Draft House is essentially 
a full-on old-school big-screen experience. Because have you ever been in, a, in the movie theater where there's a screen that's like not that much bigger than my projection screen in my house? I've had this experience. Yes. They're guaranteeing a minimum of a 66-foot wide screen, Dolby Atmos, 100% recliner seats, and more legroom. Which is good, because then you're less likely to have a soda dumped on you. <laughs> I love the reclining seats. And the giant cup holders. It... And to be able to pick your seating before you even arrive. That's just awesome. Anybody doing that, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Quick follow-up. Vava has responded to Epson's lawsuit. We talked about that last week. Quote, Vava believes that Epson's lawsuits are intended to disparage its competitors and mislead consumers into wrongly believing that emerging home theater projector manufacturers such as Vava make inferior products. And they also say that lawsuits like this are bad for the industry and it's all about Epson losing market share. They say third-party testing validates their claims. They look forward to their court case or their day in court. They did not mention that their early claims of 6,000 lumens from their projectors are gone from their website, which is, I think, what kind of got uh, Epson kind of tiffed up on that. Yeah. If you want to get sort of third party on this, take a look at Projector Central's measurements of the Vava 4K uh, for a fairly disinterested third party. They do, uh, they measure all the things. They do a good, consistent job of it. I do not think 2,500 lumens is uh, out of line, but I am also not angry and in court on this one. So we wait with bated breath. Indeed. That also reminds me, we were talking about throw ratios. One thing that differentiates these projectors, uh, the short throw designs and the ultra short throw designs, right. the smaller that number, as far as the throw ratio is, the closer it can be to the wall to still produce the desired projected sized image. That's something to keep in mind when you're going through specs on these as well. What's a throw ratio, Uncle Robert? <laughs> Effectively, how far it needs to be away from the screen in order to project that image you're looking for. In the case right. of, say, like that LG we were talking about earlier with its triple laser design, that is currently, mm -hmm. in my mind, if I am correct, that has the lowest throw ratio of all the short throw projectors right. out there, making it so that to get, say, a 120-inch image, it can be significantly closer to the wall, thus making the mounting of that or the table you would need or simply the setup for it a little more convenient. Right. And yeah, I would say Vava dropping that 6,000 lumen claim. Well, <laughs> I think Epson's intended lawsuit, if there even is going to be one, uh, had its effect. Right. I think the 6,000 lumen claim dropped from their website a while back. Okay. Battles will be battles. Ultra short throw, you know, depending on the model, you know, you're talking about the it being maybe the lens or the mirror and the lens being like 18 to 24 inches from the wall. Depending on where you're putting it, that can actually be significant. Uh, you might need a much larger piece of furniture to aim your ultra short throw projector at the screen. It exactly. sounds silly until you've, you're realizing you're buying a brand new console and things get spendy in your living room. You also might think that a, an ultra short throw projector is going to be incredibly bright because it's so close to the screen compared to a front projector. But that's sort of the, the combination of the angle and the aspherical lens and the mirror, I think, can be kind of tough on brightness. Uh, more importantly, most people are using ambient light rejecting screens. And the idea of an ALR screen is that it essentially think of a sawtooth pattern on a screen. One part of the sawtooth pattern is facing down towards the projector and it is white or silver or whatever color it happens to be from that projector manufacturer almost invariably it's going to be white and it 
reflects the light from the projector to your face. And the other side of that sawtooth, that diagonal pattern kind of sticking off the wall, is black. And it is designed to absorb the light coming from the ceiling to prevent it from being reflected to your eyeballs. And that makes the colors deeper and it makes the screen look brighter. Ambient light rejecting screens are as low as 0.6 gain, which really, really drops your foot lamberts, aka the reflected light coming off of the screen. It is a significant drop. Also, going from a 100-inch screen to a 120-inch screen can be a significant drop in your foot lamberts. I think in one case I looked at it, I could take my projector from being like 60 plus foot Lamberts, which is in, you know, in theory bright enough to use with a lot of ambient light, to something under 30 foot Lamberts, which is not really something you want to be dealing with at all. Also, ambient light rejecting screens reject overhead light, not side light. So if you have windows, your ambient light rejecting screen is not going to help you, <laughs> which is what our, our, our friend Ryan discovered. Windows are not your friend with projectors, even with really bright projectors. When you get into these $6,000, $10,000, $20,000 projectors, then we're talking a lot more light. Not necessarily. I was just looking at a Sony. Uh, they have a 4K laser uh -oh. projector short throw. It's about 2,500 lumens. Right. Unless you are really spending some coin on a cinema projector, they're all in that That's sub 3,000 yeah. range as far as light output goes. For Ryan's setup, effectively on paper, had everything right. He had an ambient light rejecting screen. He had the projector mm -hmm. optimized for that. But it is not dealing with light coming in from the sides like it can with light from overhead. And right. regardless, when you think projector, I have to just say... Uh, you should be thinking a light-controlled room, ideally as dark as possible, just to make that pop the way you yeah. think it should pop. Uh, certain rooms, certain window setups, depending on where that light's coming from, even an AR screen won't save you. So looking at sort of my projector, my I have a 550 UB, you know, you're looking at an image size of 100 inches and a distance of around 10 feet you're getting, with a screen gain of 1.0, you're talking about 112 foot Lamberts, which is a lot of light for a projector. If I take that screen gain down to 0.6, you're talking about 67 foot Lamberts. And if I take that thing from 100 inches up to 120 inches, which also requires clicking on the right button on the calculator, uh, and I'm using Projector Central's calculator, which is really outstanding, that gets with that 0.6 screen game, which is typical for a lot of uh, ALR screens, I'm down to 31 foot Lamberts. That's a big drop. So remember, the bigger your screen gets, I literally, after this conversation, series of conversations with Ryan, I realized that I am suddenly no longer interested in going from a 100 inch to a 120 screen. Right. And if you're curious about foot Lamberts, that's kind of an old school term for light output. And it really came yeah. from the cinema and theater industry. And for a long time, when I first started calibrating, that was a number often used when talking about right. the light output. NITs are the scientific international standard. And if you want to do a conversion between foot Lamberts and NITs, effectively take whatever the foot Lambert rating is and multiply it by about 3.4. And that will give you the equivalent in NITs, if you're more familiar with the, <laughs> with NITs light output, which is how if every anywhere TV other is than the United States. <laughs> it's so weird that, yeah. Actually, you know what? I can switch the units on this. Hold on. I can switch it to NITs. Yeah. I did but not know that. It's just a conversion you can do. Right. And 
it used to annoy me a lot back in the day because anytime you talk to somebody and they're mentioning Foot Lamberts, it's almost always cinema related or projection related. Right. And then anybody talking nits, it was any other display type. <laughs> and I got tired of those two different uh, units. Units of measurement. In my head, I just kind of do everything in nits and I stick to that. <laughs> and if I hear Foot Lambert, I'm just like, okay, multiply that by about three and a half. <laughs> This about. one's for Robert. Yeah. A 100-inch screen uh, at a throw distance, a, a 1.0 screen game, 100-inch screen, and throw distance calculates to about 9 feet 10 inches. That gives me 303 nits. If I bump that up to 120 inches, it drops down to 211 nits. And if I drop the screen gain down, I get that down to 126 nits. Just the fact that we have projection, consumer projection setups now that can break 200 nits regularly. That is pretty damn impressive compared to where it used to be not that long ago. Yes. And doing it with deeper black levels. Yeah. I would like to point out. Got to have the contrast. Also, shout out to Elite Screens, uh, who has some uh, ALR screen options that get up to about 0.8 or 0.9 gain so if you're looking for a brighter experience that's one way to get that i would also say too if you have a room that doesn't require an alr screen don't use it Mm -hmm. use a flat matte white screen either a 1.0 gain or maybe even a little higher you really don't need alr unless you are dealing with overhead lights in which case they are quite effective and can make a projector in a room say with ceiling lights look a hell of a lot better it's a beautiful thing Mm mm-hmm Case, a.k.a. Daniel, one of our patrons, emailed, Hi, guys. I bought the BenQ HT3550i, the refresh model that comes with Android TV. Absolutely loving it so far, especially at this price point. I was wondering what would be the best way to configure my AV gear for this projector focused around HDR content. He's got a Marantz SR6011, an Oppo UDP203D Blu-ray player, an NVIDIA Shield TV Pro. And he says, currently, the Oppo and the NVIDIA Shield are plugged into his Marantz AVR. The AVR goes to the projector and everything works as it should. Right here, I would say stop. (laughs) Don't fix anything. What's the problem? Uh, (laughs) Well... I mean, my first thought is like the, you know, the Oppo UDP 2 or 3D, UHD, Blu-ray, 3D, DVD, DVD, audio, SACD, and CD. And then as far as adjusting any internal controls within the Oppo itself, you should not have to be doing anything like that. You really just want to feed that raw HDMI signal and the HDR content encoded within it directly to the display and let the display take care of everything. Don't tamper or tweak with anything on its path between the source device and the output be it a projector or a TV. I just wouldn't do it. It definitely supports HDR10. And then I want to say they've had some firmware updates for the UDP203. Yeah, I need Um, to check that Marantz, but I assume it'll do pass-through for HDR, Dolby Vision. And if it does, I would connect everything to that and make it one less device. It's your video signal is jumping through before it makes it to the TV, or in this case, a projector. That's a pretty sweet-looking projector, spec-wise. does 95% DCI color. Apparently, it's got a calibrated Rec. 709 for SDR. That's pretty cool. No, it is 4K, too. It's all pretty good, I have to say. That's uh, yeah. for a $1,500, $1,600 projector. I'd like to see the long-term usage of that. I've often wondered about reliability of BenQ projectors. I guess I have to do a little more research on that. <laughs> it is pretty cool, though, seeing the many, many more projector options out there now. 
while they have issues maybe with, you know, the brightness you would want for a true HDR experience, especially if you have any kind of light in the room. But the fact that they're pushing well above Rec. 709 color, uh, your standard dynamic range color, and getting closer and closer to doing something that like your average OLED or a high quality LCD panel can produce as far as that, mm -hmm. what they call cinematic color, is just nice to see on more projectors nowadays. Color has come a long way in a short period of time on these relatively affordable projector designs, including that BenQ HT3550i. I will say, yeah, HDR, the Marantz SR6011 supports HDR10 Dolby Vision. Uh, yeah. Does 4K pass-through, does 4K upscaling. Um, Plug all the devices into that. And yeah, and don't have the Marantz do anything to that signal. Just move it along <laughs> right to the right. display. That's what I was looking for. So as of February 8th, 2019, Oppo's UDP 203 and 205 have an HDMI and bypass mode for Dolby Vision pass-through by the HDMI input. Okay, you could, it sounds like. Yeah. If you're running out of HDMI ports, that's one thing. But if you right. have available ports on the receiver, just use them. Yeah. yeah. Keep it as simple as possible. Don't fix anything, Daniel. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Bai emailed us back about a subwoofer problem, which is fixed. He says, quote, I figured I'd let y'all know what the ultimate solution to the sub issue was. Talked to DefTech and Yamaha, and they basically agreed that the sub was bad. DefTech estimated to be 150 bucks for me to order a new board to fix it since it's out of warranty. Since I'd been looking at upgrading anyways, I decided to pick up a Sioux VTF2 Mark V instead. That is a great subwoofer. Side note, he says, that thing is a monster. It finally came in this weekend, and I now have working bass again. It sounds great. However, the upgrade-itis is in full swing as ELAC had a sale on the debut 2.0 since I guess they're coming out with a new version. Waiting on those to ship. This also led me to having to pick up a new receiver since mine doesn't support Atmos. I stopped short of getting an LG OLED, though. Going to wait for some sales later this year. Year. Thanks for the suggestions that led me to doing enough troubleshooting to determine what was actually going on. Bye. And you've got way better bass. Not to, you know, be mean to that uh, definitive technology subwoofer, but uh, you literally have a amazing, amazing subwoofer now. So props on that. Excellent. I love the ELAC debut 2.0. I think they're a fantastic speaker for the money. I will reach out to ELAC and find out if they are upgrading that. But uh, if those are on sale, that's a fantastic deal for a great set of speakers. So this is a good thing. Uh, Ronnie had a question for us. He says, what's the difference between backlight in the picture settings and picture brightness? Do they both increase and lower the overall brightness without affecting the brightness and contrast settings? Is it okay to crank them up to max to produce HDR or improve HDR on a TV with 400 nits? Good question. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. The backlight on an LCD television, or I think they call it OLED light level. Mm -hmm. You could think of as something of the OLED equivalent. That is effectively adjusting how bright the backlighting system is as it's pushing through the layers and creating the pixels you see. That control is literally adjusting the brightness of the picture. And that is the control you want to go to for making quick, easy adjustments in terms of making a picture as bright as your eyes would like it to be. Now, if you crank it all the way up and it's still not enough, there's not much you can do about it when you look in the picture control settings for something labeled brightness, what that usually is, is something that affects the very darkest details in the picture. 
And that picture brightness control is distinctly different from what the backlight's doing. The backlight affects the whole picture in a sense, whereas the picture brightness control is only affecting the darkest grays. Say you are having what they call black crush, whereas detail goes into black, it is clipping in a sense. Well, you'd say clipping with the brightest detail, but you're crushing some right. of the darkest detail. And if that's the case, often adjusting the picture brightness control up a little bit can bring some of those details back that are in the darkest portions of the picture. The problem is, is that by adjusting brightness in the picture controls on a TV, you are directly changing whatever the native black level of that TV is. So in the case of OLED, if the pixel is off, there is no light coming out of there. But if I crank up the picture brightness setting on my OLED enough, the black suddenly turns gray and it will never achieve that inky dark black. It doesn't matter if it's an OLED or an LCD. That's the risk you're taking with messing around with picture brightness. Generally, especially in the calibrated picture modes that you'll find on TVs like a a cinema or a filmmaker mode, the brightness is usually pretty spot on in terms of mm -hmm. getting it as dark as possible, yet not decimating those darkest details in shadow image or in shadow details. With HDR, typically TVs are going to do crazy things like increase the contrast to the picture to maximum. HDR on a TV that really can't do a thousand nits or more, it's going to be very difficult to improve upon that other than to just make sure you're not tweaking any settings beyond what the defaults are as far as the backlight and the picture brightness, especially when viewing HDR. Neither of those should need to be touched. One hopes. Yeah. <laughs> so in essence, stick to your backlight control or your OLED light level control just to make those fast adjustments where, oh, I'm in a bright room. I need the picture to be brighter to make it nice and viewable. Or it's late at night, the lights are low, and the picture's too bright. That's where you go to your backlight setting and just turn it up or down if you already don't have programmed presets for all of that stuff. But generally, you stay away from controls like brightness and contrast unless you have appropriate means of seeing exactly what's going on you shouldn't need to mess with those too much compared to the default values for a, a good preset something delightful about having a good preset oh uh ronnie also adds what type of hdmi cable should be used for dolby vision any quality rated cable should be <laughs> just fine I'm a big fan of Monoprice and they're labeled 18 gigabit per second cables or whatever the latest standard is now if that's changed. But any of those certified 4K cables for very affordable prices will do just fine. There is no special requirement for transmitting Dolby Vision content to a display. There's no special cable requirements. There's It's designed to work within what is out there right now. It's a good thing. Forstel tweeted, hey, I have a pair of MDR V6 headphones. Do you know where I can get replacement ear pads? I do. So ear pads, especially if you have rare or exotically shaped headphones, they will impact your life uh, over years of use because you will wear them out over time. I have done this several times on several different headphones. So if your ear pads are oddly shaped, and I'm going to look over towards my beloved Nighthawk headphones as I say that, buy an extra pair when you can, because if you can't buy them in the future, you'll be pissed. And then you'll be trying to figure out how to either resuscitate what's left of the headphones on your ear pads or have custom ones made or modify ones to fit. And that can be really, really problematic. When you're looking at professional or high-end headphones, generally speaking, there are replacements available from the manufacturer. So, uh, you know, like I have Biodynamic TT770 Pros, one of my favorite headphones of all time. 
Biodynamics makes replacement ear pads for those. Sony makes replacement ear pads for the 7506, which is essentially the same enclosure as the V6, although it has a different sound signature. Uh, Sennheiser's professional headphones. Uh, the headset I use to record this podcast, I think the original ear pad slash headset design, the, the cups, you know, are probably a 25-year-old design that was put together for broadcast engineers and then was beloved by DJs. And uh, they they make replacement ear pads for this, which is good because I've worn out two sets of ear pads on this over the last decade. Sony V6s, again, they're the same pads as the 7506. Replacement stock pads are on Amazon. Dakoni Audio, Brainwaves Audio uh, are aftermarket companies that make uh, replacement ear pads for those Sonys and for lots and lots and lots of other headphones. Brainwaves Audio actually has them in various colors if you're looking for a style bump. So when you're thinking about stock versus aftermarket ear pads, the first thing you have to remember is the stock ear pads, they are a familiar and predictable sound. They are also the same cheap fake leather material on a lot of professional headphones or the same velour material if you're looking at biodynamic stuff. I bet the velour pads from Dakoni Audio would be more comfortable for extended listening sessions. I think Brainwaves also makes a velour pad for the Sony headset or that Sony uh, headphone. I don't know how they might tweak or change the sound versus the stock pads. I do know that there are folks that roll ear pads um, because, you know, there can be sound differences between uh, leather, fenestrated leather, which is what Dakoni calls, uh, you know, like a leather or a pleather ear pad with lots of holes in it and velour. I think a lot of people who roll ear pads might exaggerate the bass or treble increase or decrease, but uh, that also may be me being less sensitive to it than other people's. But you can actually change the bass and the treble by the material, how well it actually fits to your head and whether or not it has holes punched in it or not. Uh, you know, how much it will change uh, is probably not as dramatic as you might hope, but with bias confirmation, it can sound amazing. But uh, all of these companies, I haven't seen Brainwaves pads, but I can vouch for Dakoni Audio making some nice ear pads. Um, I hope this helps. I think Sony will probably make the 7506 ear pads for the rest of my life, so I don't need to worry about stocking up on those. <laughs> However, I completely probably agree, not. though, that if you like your current setup and you think those headphones are going to last for years, get an extra pair of ear pads while yeah. you can. Even for my in-ears, from sure, that time when I picked them up uh, many years ago now, I ended up getting a whole <laughs> bag of those replaceable foam ear tips that are just fantastic, right. but literally almost disposable. But since I have like 50 to 100 of them left, I never have to worry about it. And it's a pair of ear <laughs> earbuds that I use to this day, and they're still awesome, but good advice. I like it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mentioned tacos earlier. If you haven't seen it on Netflix, Taco Chronicles is amazing. I think uh, Food and Wine called it a love letter to the taco. Um, and I'll just say, like the opening of the first episode, which talks about Alpa Store tacos, which is something Robert and I usually imbibe on whenever we're in Las Vegas at a particular location just down the street from the Wynn. Yeah, I just want to say uh, there's a great line. It's basically they, they go and they talk about sort of the history and what went into creating this, like, you know, the, the Lebanese influence on Mexican culture that turned into the it's just it, it's fantastic. It's food history. It's how it's made. It's what, you know, cutting edge chefs are turning it into. It talks about, you know, the, the different varieties, the regions of the of Mexico they come from. Um, I also love the line uh, that literally the Alpa Store Taco is talking to you at the opening of the first episode. And you are seeing 
being the only one that will not let you down, the taco that cares for you, a tried and true friend. And I can say an Alpastor taco has brought me great comfort uh, on some long and unpleasant evenings, not just in Las Vegas. So uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, if you like food TV, or even if you don't like food TV and you just like tacos, check out Taco Chronicles. And if you see Alpastor tacos and they have a knife and they're cutting this big slab of meat with a piece of pineapple on top, just get some and ask for pineapple. It's a good mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> that is probably my favorite taco. And I'm now envisioning my local taco shop, which is literally about 500 feet away from me. <laughs> they do a good tacos out the store there. Yes. Very tasty. Tacos El Gordo, by the way, if mm-hmm. you're in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good food. I'm so hungry. Hey, I finally fired up uh, Doom Eternal. It's a game I picked up a while ago on sale, and I just couldn't get into it compared to how much i enjoyed mm-hmm. doom 2016 well I, I had some free time and i finally got familiar with how the gameplay has changed in terms of what's going on compared to doom 2016 and i have to say it's finally really grown on me i'm enjoying my trek through the storyline although i really couldn't tell you what the hell the storyline is it's effectively slay everything in front of you <laughs> and keep moving no matter what never stop moving I am enjoying it. And of course, it's got a sick soundtrack, which is probably what Doom might be best known for. Uh, Even going back to Doom 2016, it's effectively, somebody once put it as, you're paying $60, if you're paying full price, you're paying $60 for effectively a heavy metal soundtrack that includes a video game. (laughs) And I go along with that. It's awful fun. And I'm also enjoying, there are some secret things to find within Doom Eternal and many other games, but one of them in Doom Eternal is actually albums that you'll find in hidden areas. And you can actually play that track. Each album you find has, I believe, one track on it. And you can actually set that to the background music. So it just mixes it up and adds to an already enjoyable hack and slay marathon (laughs) through that game. Anyway. So relaxing. They need that on the big screen. And I've got a boatload of calibration going on. That's good. Yeah. I've got that. Vaccination means calibration. You ain't kidding. That's probably what's going on because suddenly it's like, oh, this OLED or this LCD or this cool projector. And it's given me an opportunity to roll through my Calman software some more that's optimized for a lot of these displays, but also just testing out the new features within that software that allows me to do really good work. Every new display I look at is a small adventure that I enjoy taking. <laughs> we yeah. like adventures. And I'll be working this weekend if anybody's looking for me. <laughs> Copy that. Oh, my goodness. Tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at AVXL, or just email us, ask at AVXL.com. If you want to hashtag, hashtag ask AVXL works for us. And seriously, uh, to everybody that supports us on Patreon.com slash AVXL, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your contributions on a monthly basis make the show possible. We should have at least one, possibly two hangouts this month, and we're going to tweak around some of the stuff we do with you, so hopefully you will enjoy that. Uh, Yeah. With that, nice. I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.